0: I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line live from a snake hole, it's
1: Andy Greenwald. Remember, Chris, first of all, Hello. Hello, good friend. <laughs> Chris, do you remember on the beloved sitcom Parks and Recreation when uh, Aubrey Plaza's character had an alter ego named Janet Snakehole and there was the Snakehole Lounge? And I'm like, what a funny word salad. The word snake and the word hole, they go great together. It's a peanut butter and ice cream thing, everybody's happy. That's not a thing. Peanut butter and chocolate thing. Whatever. It's been a long morning
0: Peanut butter and ice cream. (laughs) Jesus.
1: Turns out. What what does the colonel say in Boogie Nights? That's what he likes. Anyway, (laughs) Chris, turns out snake holes are actually the holes where snakes live. Pay
0: pay (laughs) me (laughs) a word picture here. What's going on in the desert?
1: Boy, did we see a lot of them. So uh, 6.30 a.m. call this morning in the desert behind the studio. Fun thing about Albuquerque is you can be on a major production studio a lot and then there's just a gate that hangs open and you can just drive through it and you're on the part of the map where here be monsters like you are literally just at the end of it and you could just keep going and there are snakes and there are dragonflies that look like that look like bees hitching rides on other bees until they form some (laughs) sort of like voltron (laughs) bee okay and they're just coming around checking out video village so, yeah, so we were out there six thirty this morning with with my new best friend Alan Cumming, who was a great sport about all of it and here's the thing: the shots are beautiful, really excited about what we're getting um this is for episodes five and six. We're shooting it together now, but I have to be come clean with you. I know I've been coming in hot on these guest podcasts, but you know I build up a lot of a lot of content in the morning when I'm out there. yeah, the, the thing is, I watch Breaking Bad and I love breaking bad and and I know you did too and And, you know, I wrote about it and I, and I, so people have a record of me watching the show in real time, enjoying it, appreciating it and musing about it. During those years when I was watching the show, there was never a moment where I was like, that's where I want to (laughs) be. You know what I mean? Where I was like, when Walt and Jesse are like eight days out or whatever the name of that episode was, there wasn't a part of me that was like, yeah, really wonder what it was like in the DIT tent that day when they shot that scene.
0: And yet. Dude, I think if you remember correctly. No, it was the the winter of 2017. Mm -hmm. When did Trump get elected? 16?
1: I mean, I I try to black it out, but the election was in 2016.
0: Right. So in February of 2017, I went to New Mexico for a romantic weekend getaway. Remember this?
1: Uh, sort of. I wasn't clocking it with the ferocity I would be these days. But so, yeah.
0: I think I came back and I was like, Santa Fe, lot to love, maybe not the best time of year to go, a little bit empty, had some some issues with the lack of moisture in the air when my skin started to fall off. But, I would say, <laughs> it is essentially uh-huh. the uh, Elrond's kingdom compared to Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> and now you live in Albuquerque.
1: I do. I do. And and I, do, I don't want to sound like, I mean, I, I don't spend, nor do most people here, a great deal of time in the unforgiving, punishing sun of the mesa, which is where we were this morning. I, I'm the genius who wrote these outdoor scenes, and it's totally worth it for what we're getting. I mean, the, the light, everything is beautiful. And otherwise, this has been an incredibly hospitable and fantastic town. Our crew is mostly local. Like, I am thrilled to be here. But I do know a large number of people who have been listening to this podcast and following me on you know social media. All of them were unanimous in thinking that's a desert guy. Yeah. They're like that's yeah. the guy who's got the gear and he likes to like It's
0: essentially TE e. Lawrence free solo. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
1: for sure. You know, you know what I mean? So so it's been a it's been a real come to come to Hephaestus moment. I'm, I was going to say Apollo, but I think the God of the Forge is more accurate. You know what I wanted um, to ask
0: you about is if when the, when the uh, Emmys got announced the other day, was there any like chatter on the set among people who were like not snubbed or or rewarded with with nominations, but is that kind of like when the All-Star team gets announced and then people like in sports media are talking? Like what, what was the reaction to that?
1: It's a great question. Um, I would say that the all-star game announcements in the NBA, I don't know, but I'd be curious how it filters into like the league offices and the training staff, because that's kind of how production is divided too. So the crew and the grips and the gaffers and the riggers and everybody who's actually out there in the desert doing this incredible work so this vision can come to life, I, I, I think generally they can take it or leave it. Right. I think actors were excited and happy for their friends. Um,
0: because, like, there Kim were, Dickens, knew, she, Deadwood got nominated, right? You know She was happy about she's that. She's psyched. Yes,
1: right. she, she, was, she was very psyched about that. Um,
0: Rosario Dawson, huge fan of the last season of Game of Thrones. Just thought they nailed it.
1: <laughs> that has not come up. We we have talked about many other topics. That has not come up. It would
0: up. be funny, though, if, like, you guys were so deferential towards her because she's the star of the show that she, she could just come one. around and just have, like, the worst takes. And you guys would be like, yeah, you know, that's a really good point, Rosario. She was everybody just like, I thought they nailed it. I totally, I totally feel like they got all the emotional beats right. I didn't need more plot. I didn't need to see I it. Would,
1: I would say that on like week one, she could have pulled that. But now that everybody knows just how relative, just how cool she is and just hanging out, that, 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 uh, that people would call her on it oh, and, and everyone would feel comfortable doing that. Um, just to give you just kind of give you two more little tidbits from the field before we get into some comic-con talk. Cause I'm, I'm ready to talk of about this. Of course. Uh, I do want to just give, so people over the weekend, I came back to LA and that's part of the story I wanted to tell. I got to see my family, which is great. And I got to feel a, a climate suitable for human existence for a brief moment. Um, I did run into a friend and, 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 and friend of the pod, uh, Stephen Falk, the creator of your, the worst great show. And I think that for the first time, like he looked at me and he was just like, welcome, brother. <laughs> <laughs> <'Cause he saw. laughs> like the look in my eye, there is a sort of like ninth dimensional chest that is necessary now. And I was trying to explain this to someone, but that just just so people know what this week is like on Friday, we wrapped episode four and started episode five and six block, which are being filmed uh, cross boarded with one director on Friday.
0: And so for people who don't know, what does boarding mean?
1: So cross boarding means you have the scenes for multiple episodes and you cross, you, you, you do them on Friday. We film scenes from episodes five and six on the same set that were, that were that on the same sets where episode, those episodes touch. So we're not, it's not just that we're filming them out of order because we do that anyway for a single episode It's that we're filming multiple episodes uh, at the same time. So with one director for five and six. So that was, we put away four on Friday and we started five and six and this week we're shooting um, five and six and, I currently today have to uh, look at and potentially rewrite slightly a scene from the pilot that we're reshooting on Friday, Mm. um, which I thought was done last fall. We are, (laughs) um, but everything's great. Everything's great. Um, I have to turn in edits on eight, rewrite nine, and then write the script for 10. Uh, And then there's also, everyone's asking all these questions about five and six. So to exist, and then next week I have to start editing too. So to exist in like multiple dimensions of space and time is a skill that I don't know if I had going into it. I still the evidence will be up to everyone else whether I have the talent or ability to do that. But I do think that was part of the look that that fault gave me, gotcha. right? which is which is sort of like you know it's like when one Highlander greets another. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> well, yeah, this is the way things work. Last thing, I put it on Instagram. uh, Brilliant wonderful Kim Dickens was sitting in front of me on the plane the other night. Um, Christine Woods, a brilliant actor who's also on our show was sitting, uh, just to the side. And then as we get on the plane, we're settling in. It's like the last flight out of Albuquerque Friday night, many, many industry types heading home for the families. The, uh, the uh, flight attendant got on the got on the mic and decided to freestyle a little bit and she was like hey everyone you know while you're taking your seats just know we just came from los angeles and i would characterize our ride as extremely turbulent <laughs> she's like so what i'd like to ask everyone is to look in front of you look in the seat pocket and make sure you know where your vomit bag is located and don't be ashamed to use it we had six pukers on the way here
0: are you serious
1: yeah, I feel like American Airlines needs to check the check itself. She was like, "Don't be embarrassed." I was. She's like, "If you're sitting in the back of the plane, it will feel like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Have you all been to that?"
0: Okay, wait a second. So I've already it, not even because of my fear of flying, which is I think at a normal rate of don't want to die, but don't often think about it too much. But I think because right. I've been reading so much Larry McMurtry, I've been th- I've I've been considering like getting back into driving.
1: It's <laughs> just like across great distances.
0: Yeah, like if somebody's like, "You yeah. should come visit me in Albuquerque," for instance, I would be like, "Sure that's a that's a solid fourteen hours." Just, I'll just I, t- tear I, that I, off. Like, I, I kind you're considering it, and now I'm considering it. Yeah, for sure.
1: So, I, I just want to paint the picture of 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 your boy. <laughs> Your boy, young panic attack here, like dry swallowing a Xanax and palming another one just in case.
0: You're like chopping up lines of Xanax
1: on your train the main table. thing was, they were like, don't be embarrassed to bazooka barf in front of your seatmates. And I'm like, the-
0: technically, these people are working for me. They don't look it, to me. If I remember correctly, the flight from Al- Albuquerque to LA is not a, like a jumbo jet. It's pretty intimate.
1: No. Yeah. It's an intimate flight. It's a short flight. Um, I downloaded the longest possible headspace (laughs) treatment. I was like supersizing the headspace. I was like, give me 55 minutes of unadulterated New Zealander guy talking into my ear about chilling out. And then it wasn't really that bumpy. So I feel like the reverse psychology worked, but you can't, you've got to hold on to your lunch when you're sitting near Kim Dickens.
0: You have to do it, you know? There's this golf swing technique. There's this guy who works out of Westlake, and his name's George Genghis. I've been really getting into his videos recently, his YouTubes,
1: and... Chris, somewhere, Timothy Simons is nodding his head.
0: And he has this thing about, like, getting external. You know, like, before you hit your shot, you, like, look out and up, take in the mountains, take in the surroundings, take in nature, and just get out of your head. Maybe that's what you need to do. Although getting external on a plane would be dangerous. Cause that would imply yeah. being outside of the body of the of the actual airplane.
1: No, that's a terrible place to ride. <laughs> Did you see that episode of the Twilight Zone? That's <laughs> not a good idea.
0: Yeah. So uh anyway, I just whatever I can do to help with these kinds of mindfulness exercises. Uh you could also, you know, you could have watched some peak TV. A lot of good stuff out there. And right now you could have listened to some pods. I
1: yeah, I saw I'm not going to name names. I did see on my flight back yesterday the the co-creator of of an Emmy-nominated program watching the Ballad of Buster Scruggs on, like, an iPhone 7.
0: Just just as Joel Cohen intended.
1: (laughs) It's quite a world. All right. I'm sorry. I've monologued all my anxieties to you. And uh well, I've only got a few minutes
0: with you, so I just want to give you the floor to riff a little bit. I have Fantasy's going to come on a little bit, and he and I are going to talk about some of the Marvel stuff and also a little bit about Big Little Lies and maybe even Veronica Mars. Uh, did and, you
1: fin- Did you finish Veronica Mars? Uh
0: I did. I did. Um, did you really? Yeah, Oh, yeah. My, my wife loves Veronica Mars, and I, I I really thought this season was incredible, but yeah, it's been wow. it, it's been a real like gauntlet where. I've watched all of Stranger Things, all of Dark, all of Veronica Mars, all of Big Little Lies. Like I think I've watched like 45 hours of television in the last month and it, it's like wow. I'm feeling it, man. It's like I got some some I got some tr- like real miles on the odometer right now. But I wanted to ask you so there was a couple things that came out of Comic-Con this weekend. Obviously the big thing was the Marvel Phase 4 announcement with a bunch of the new movies, a bunch of the Disney Plus shows given fixed dates and then some teasers about Captain Marvel 2, Black Panther 2, Fantastic Four, yep. uh, and possibly an X-Men movie. Um, I believe that's it. Oh, and Blade, which is fucking crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that is the craziest one. Yeah. It, the, so the story on that apparently is that that was like Mahershala Ali like got a meeting and was just like, we need to make Blade. And Kevin Feige was like, okay. But I kind of like that, <laughs> that that kind of randomness can still happen in a world that's so highly constructed. Um, but I wanted to see also if you had any thoughts on the Westworld or uh, Watchmen trailers and just any, any big picture thing thinking coming out of all the announcements and, and stuff coming out of Comic-Con.
1: Well, I think, well, there were a couple things. I think that the Marvel stuff, of course, I mean, it dominates the entire industry, the film industry and the sort of genre movie industry. I thought it was really interesting, and it's also very telling about where things are going because this was the first time that Feige is out there promoting movies and TV shows and discussing them as... Um, related and interconnected. And it feels like this is going to be one of the first test cases for the conversation that you and I have been having about what is what anymore, what, what which things go in which box, and how do they connect. Yeah, specifically, um,
0: the. Uh, it sounds like the Scarlet Witch character will be one of the, the canaries in the coal mine for them, where a lot of the yep. stuff that happens in the WandaVision show will actually also impact the Doctor Strange sequel. Which is called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I mean, and here's the thing crazy. is like, I've been texting Greenwald about this since Friday. We've been going back and forth, and I feel like you've been messing with me a little bit because, like, you'll be like, old man, I've come from a long distance to check out this <laughs> Comic Con news, and maybe I'm a little too old for this shit. And then I'm like, yeah, me too, man. Some of this stuff sounds a little out there. And then you're like, no, psych, I'm really into the Eternals. <laughs> Turtles could be good. (laughs) I know, but I don't even know. I don't know what we're talking about anymore. So you got to tell me.
1: I don't. I don't fully know either. I feel like. I feel like Kevin Feige is about to get a little weird, and I'm into that. I mean, the the caution to that, of course, is the last time we thought he was getting a little weird was Captain Marvel, and he hired Fleck and Bowden to do it. And you and I really like and admire Fleck and Bowden as filmmakers. I think we both thought they kind of missed the mark with a Captain Marvel movie. But I also think that they were in a really tough spot. I think that the Captain Marvel movie, you know, which by the way, a global success, and that's how it will be and probably should be remembered, was almost constrained by all the things it needed to do and needed to be for people to be satisfied with it. I mean, it took long enough for Marvel to make a female-fronted movie, and they had to deliver. Uh, and whatever you may have thought about the movie creatively, and you and I did not love it, it delivered financially, so they're ready to move on from that. That said they are taking some pretty interesting swings with the creative teams behind these movies and they are delving into the aspects of comic book fandom that I am a fan of. And I, I have a distinct memory of talking about this in the abstract with you a couple months ago, which is that, you know, comic book, comic books themselves have gone through various phases and there was, um, you know, there, there was like the, the, the bright cheeriness of the golden age. And then there's in the 60s, there's there, you know, like there's the Batman TV show influencing the culture and vice versa. Then a lot of the 80s and 90s are grim and gritty. And, you know, you would be laughed out of the room for even mentioning liking the Adam West Batman, for example. You had to only like the Frank Miller Batman. And then we've come full circle again, where writers like Grant Morrison and, and many other of his disciples embraced the insanity of the medium, while also trying to tell emotionally true stories. And that is a decades and decades of development of a genre that I'm trying to condense into a 90-second soundbite. But I do think that the movies, we have 20 years of these kinds of movies, and it seems like the audiences are willing to potentially, or at least they're about to be tested, their willingness is about to be tested in terms of their ability to, to roll with the weirdness. Uh, when it came out, the third Thor movie, Ragnarok, I think was the greatest celebration of this sort of thinking, and I adore that movie. And its success, I think, has really emboldened Marvel in a lot of different directions. For me, the main takeaway about the Eternals, which is seems to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting for this Phase 4 in terms of original, um, not original characters, but original MCU characters, is you know the really interesting cast, and it's top-heavy with Angelina Jolie and uh, Salma Hayek, and then, you know, you, your boy, the bodyguard uh, in the back, and Brian Tyree Henry now. I mean, it, it's a pretty exciting cast. Yeah. And Chloe, Chloe Zhao, who, who made this movie, The Rider, that people love, which is, you know, as far as I understand it, about as far from this kind of space epic as you could possibly imagine. But the words that were said in the press conference is that this is Kirby-esque insanity. And the Eternals are one of Jack Kirby, who, along with Stanley, created almost everything people love about Marvel Comics this was when he was fully out there and fully on one, right? With this race of like space gods and yeah, just telling these grand, grand soap operatic ideas. I think you don't make, in my opinion, and no one's asking me to green light this stuff, but you don't make the Eternals movie unless you fucking go for it. Right. And make this truly, truly Kirby-esque and insane and, and huge. And all the words coming from the panel is that that's what they were doing, which is kind of exciting. And the things that give me, that make me excited that they might actually be, making good on this promise is also stuff like Dr. Strange title, which is, you know, almost silly in its construction, but yeah. it's not, it's silly in a way that makes comic book fans excited. It's embracing the ludicrous nature of it. And then apparently also going to be a full horror movie, or at least a psychological movie. That's what movie.
0: Scott Derrickson says. This is, but the first Marvel movie that's actually scary, which is the one that you're most looking forward with for, to before I let you go?
1: Well, it, it goes right back to, to, to what I was saying about embracing the comic book side of comic books, which is, this new Thor movie, Love and Thunder, Taika coming back, Hemsworth coming back, Tessa Thompson coming back, and Natalie Portman coming back. And I got to tell people, if I could take a quick detour into comic books while we're talking about Comic-Con, Jason Aaron and Russell Dodderman's run on Thor from the last couple of years, outstanding. You get yourself a Marvel Unlimited. You read it. You'll love it. It is about Thor finding out he is unworthy and unable to lift his own hammer anymore. And he goes into a deep, depressive funk, kind of like what we saw in. Um, Endgame, and eventually picks up an axe and starts riding around on a drunken space goat, not making this up. Meanwhile, Jane Foster, his former girlfriend, scientist, doctor, uh, is dying of cancer, and picks up the hammer and becomes a Lady Thor. And is just in fucking rules. And it's really cool, and it's a great story. And obviously, Natalie Portman saw what Taika was doing, and saw the opportunity to be Thor, and not just arm candy. And they're running right towards like like the like the last the most successful Marvel movies of the last ten years have used great recent runs as inspiration for these stories, and it was great to see them going back to it. Which is why my last point, Chris, is just take a look at the X Men. Yep, X Men have been in this deep, no pun intended, existential funk, in my opinion, since Graham Morrison left left the book like twenty they're, years ago. They are the Phillies
0: bullpen of of comic oh, book geez. characters.
1: I feel triggered. <laughs> Starting. This summer, Jonathan Hickman, who is a crazy visionary comic book writer and did this definitive, like literally universe ending and rebooting run on Avengers that I really recommend for people who want like giant global level storytelling, is taking over X-Men and he has free reign to do anything he wants with it. And he says that, why do small things? This is going to fundamentally redefine what they are. This doesn't mean that this is going to be the template for what Marvel does when they reboot the X-Men as they inevitably will in the next one to three years but it it's worth keeping an eye on because the one thing that i think kevin feige has done that he hasn't gotten a lot of credit for is keeping an eye on the comic books they are run like separate companies but he knows when stuff is good and worth doing worth upstreaming which is why the the renner hawkeye show does seem to be based more or less on that
0: brilliant fraction fraction that we've talked about a lot of times you know what andy if this tv show running thing never pans out You've always got podcasting to fall back on. I missed you. I
1: love to podcast with my boy.
0: (laughs) Um, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to have Sean come on in. We're going to talk about um, more Marvel stuff, some of the other Comic-Con stuff, and Big Little Lies. Greenwald, watch out for the snake holes. We'll talk to you soon.
1: (laughs) Ask Sean what he thinks of The Lion King. (laughs) I've heard he's a big fan. (laughs) I will. Take care, man. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, Baranskis.
0: I'm now joined by... Sean Fennessey, one of my best friends, the host of The Big Picture, one of the hosts of The Rewatchables. Sean, I wanted to have you in because other than Andy, you, I think I've talked more about comic book movies, about superhero movies with you than anybody else in my life. Sad. And that's good for everybody else in our lives, I think, that we have these, <laughs> these safe outlets. I wanted to ask, without blowing up your spot, I know you were incommunicado this weekend. True story. Off the grid. And I was curious, when, when the Comic-Con hits... But you're in, you know, you're among the big trees, quite literally. I was among the big trees. Were you able to get the signal? Were you able to find out that WandaVision was hitting in 2021 on the plus?
2: I, I brokered a deal with Kevin Feige himself. <laughs> and he, he immediately after delivering his data dump to San Diego, he drove straight to Sequoia National Park and he parked outside of my tent and he hand delivered all of the info.
0: I thought maybe you had uh, trekked to a very secluded spot in a, in a national forest and then um, your own personal group came out. <laughs> yes. And and just laid out the the release schedule for yes. the next couple of months. I am
2: multiverse <laughs> yeah. is what the tree said.
0: I have a couple of different things I want to talk to you about. Greenwald and I touched on this briefly, but the one thing that I really wanted to discuss with you is this idea of Disney weaving these stories now not just through a series of uh team up and solo movies, which was sort of the first 10 years of of these films with the Avengers movies and the and the offshoots but also now bringing in the idea of the streaming service and telling stories that way. And not only to push the story forward, but also to fill in the story from behind, to fill in these side stories. A very common comic book tactic is to have these side adventures to take an X-Men character and let them have like their their Yakuza fight and and then come back and find out who they are. In some ways, I imagine it must be the challenge that makes Feige want to keep doing this. I mean, not to... suggest any kind of psychology behind it, but if you're somebody who's really achieved everything you can, culminating with Avengers Endgame knocking Avatar off of the pedestal for box office, this challenge of telling stories on multiple platforms and trying to weave them together is really, really unique.
2: I'm not quite convinced that that's what they're going to try to do. Okay. And I think if you look at the programming of the TV shows in particular— they all seem to be sort of expired figures that they're trying to keep alive. I agree with you. And so one of I think one of the achievements, if we're being sincere about it, of that 10-year period of films leading up to Endgame is the fact that virtually every single movie contributed at least one small artifact or piece of mm-hmm. information that bled into this larger Avengers tale. It's not easy to do. It's easy to dismiss comic book movies as silly and childish and yada yada, but the actual act of making all those things fit together is challenging. I don't think they're necessarily driving towards that with the television series and the films. I still think that the films are the centerpiece, and that is the thing that is the thing that got the most noise and attention this weekend. And I still think that that's going to be the beating heart of this thing. Now, whether they can have some capillaries surrounding it that are constantly pumping, yeah. that's great. I think that'll be fine, and if you like certain characters... You'll watch those shows. I know you're all in for Hawkeye.
0: Yeah, I'm all in for Hawkeye. I'm excited for, like, how weird they're promising WandaVision to be. And and I think we're, you know, you get into real director bullshit right around now when, when there's nothing to see and nothing to think about. And it's just people saying, like, yeah, it's going to be ordinary people but with capes, you know? Yeah, we know that won't really <laughs> yeah, be true. Yeah, it should be Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> yeah. I, like,
2: I personally don't really care about Falcon. I'm not going to watch Falcon, more than likely. I, I don't think I'll have the same level of completism. The same way I, I struggle to have that level of completism with the Marvel Netflix series, because there is an ancillary quality to all of that yeah,
0: stuff. Yeah, and I think the way you put it is actually completely undoes my point, because when you look at it, it seems like Disney Plus the Disney Plus shows will be more or less fan service. You'll have Loki, who is a fan favorite. You'll have Falcon... And uh, the Winter Soldier, which crucially, he's not Captain America in that. So that would suggest perhaps something that's taking place before. It's possible. Um, What else are the shows that they have? They have the Hawkeye show, which sounds like Renner essentially setting up a new Hawkeye character, Kate Bishop. Um, And it's based on a comic book that I love. I think that Andy loves. I I know that you checked it out. The Matt Fraction one. Um, So, yeah, it seems like the Disney Plus shows are almost the fan service and the the old age home for some of the Avengers, and then the movies will be pushing stuff forward. Okay, so taking that as as what we're we're operating with, it feels more and more. If we didn't know this before, the Guardians of the Galaxy was the most important thing that ever happened to that studio because it gave them the the, the courage and like the kind of information that hey, we can take this out into space with characters that even comic book fans were like, really. And really try some stuff. And if we believe in the vision of what we're doing, we can make it work.
2: They're really taking that that lesson and running with it here, yeah. though. If you look at these characters, there's this acceptance now that no matter what they do, they're going to find a way to make it work. But the films that are coming next are not Guardians 3 yes. or Captain of Marvel 2. You know, it's Shang-Chi. It's, it's, it's Eternals. I mean, these are really left-field properties yeah. for Marvel. and. The the plus side is that they're obviously diverse casts and diverse characters, and they're bringing something new to the Marvel story. That is obviously what we were leading with coming out of Comic-Con is, wow, look at the diversity that Marvel has engendered here over the last couple of years, and look at where they're going in the future, which is impressive. The downside is, I don't know anything about Eternals. I'm, I'm definitely going to watch it. I love Chloe Zhao's two, first two films. I'm intrigued by the idea of it, but... It feels very far afield. And one of the things that we're starting to see in a lot of these movies is they have to stretch time Mm -hmm. to make things fit into what feels like prescription. And the Black Widow movie is very similar. Black Widow's dead. She's dead. Okay. The stakes of whatever her story are going to be are immediately lower. Yeah. No matter what happens, no matter what they show us, unless we go into some sort of weird multiverse version of Black Widow. And because of that, that being the next film, there's an there's an inevitable kind of like deflating quality around that movie. And I think in some ways they need that to be the first movie in this new phase for a very specific reason because they're going to use it to set up a lot of things that are going to come in future films, even though we know Black Widow is going to die.
0: Yeah, and then what was also interesting about what Feige did was he laid out all these new characters, like you said, a very diverse slate of movies and then kind of just teased but did not fix dates to Black Panther 2, Captain Marvel 2, uh, Fantastic Four, which he explicitly said. Then he mentioned the mutants, which everybody took to mean the X-Men, and Blade, which I don't even think they have a plot for yet. They were just like, Mahershala wants to make Blade, and we're into it.
2: When I got back on the grid yesterday, that was the first thing that I saw, which means when I opened up Twitter, people were like, is Blade. That was, that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah. And I wonder if that means they will jet stream that story sooner rather than later, because sure. there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. And I kind of admire Mahershala's gall in just saying, I've won two Oscars. I started in a hit HBO series. What I need now is money. Yeah. Please give me money. Put me on an eight-picture contract. Yeah, and
0: put me in all these movies, yes. and I'm going to show up in a cool leather jacket and, yes. and bare my teeth and kick some ass. How do yeah. I
2: get the Robert Downey Jr. participation deal is yeah. what he wants to know. And who can blame him? Because that is coin of the realm in, in modern movie stardom.
0: Um, You mentioned Mahershala. We, you know, we were also talking about some of these other movies. The... Chloe Zhao, uh, Destin Daniel Cretton making uh, Shang Chi, like it, it's these are not even these are not big name directors. I mean, these are directors that have worked in really intimate, very human, very sometimes dark material. Do you think that Marvel is going to try to introduce some more adult stakes to these movies, or do you think that they're going to bend these directors towards their kind of cotton candy ways?
2: It's very hard to say. I mean, I would imagine no. Scott Derrickson spoke very specifically about making this new Doctor Strange movie in the Multiverse of Madness, which is a title I love. It's a real throwback. Yeah. A horror movie. Yeah. He actively, he is a horror film director. The first film has a, some stray elements of horror, but not really. He really wants this to be a horror movie. And then Kevin Feige, during the press conference, very pointedly says, this will still be PG-13. <laughs> and they're bound by that. They can't, they're can't. they not going to make an horror movie. I think notably absent from yesterday's announcement was Deadpool. No word about a Deadpool movie. Yeah. Deadpool, even though Deadpool 3 is money in the bank, no matter what they do with it. And so whether that means Destin Daniel Cretton will be able to bring the kind of weighty, dramatic work that he did in Short Term 12 to the fore here, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, too, because Cretton has a movie called Just Mercy. Yeah. It was just moved from January to December and has now been hotly tabbed as an Oscar movie. It's the
0: Michael B. Jordan
2: Brie Larson movie, yes. right? Yes, and... In just in the last week, I've seen people throwing his name around for Best Director already, sight unseen on really? this film. So, And it's
0: kind of like an old-school throwback, uh, like, verdict kind of courtroom drama, courtroom right? Courtroom drama, yeah. exactly.
2: And I wonder if that means he'll have more clout in the execution of his version of, of Shang-Chi. I don't know. I, I don't really know. I personally don't know enough about Shang-Chi to even know what kind of a story you'd want to tell. It really depends. Chloe Zhao is the, probably the biggest wild card because the scale of the film she's made has been so small. And Eternals is such a CGI extravaganza in order to make a film like that work. It feels like two completely unlike things coming together to make something.
0: You know, these have to be PG-13 movies, though, because they're for everybody. So what happens to these? In terms of looking at the release schedule that we've seen, and we see a couple of, I think, three in 2020. I think there's Black Widow. Is Eternals in 2020 as well?
2: Eternals is in 2020, and I believe that's
0: it. I believe it's just Black Widow in the spring and then
2: Eternals. They launched the shows in November and then in the spring. And then you have three films in 2021. You have Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Then you have, uh, excuse me, you have Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Then you have Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Thor: Love Love and and Thunder. thunder.
0: So where do they slide Black Panther 2 in? 2022. Wow. I think think all those. So that would be five years since the first one?
2: It sounds like it will be. Black Panther 2 will probably take that February slot again. Uh, Captain Marvel 2, probably in the spring. I would imagine she would show up in a couple of these movies, though. Definitely. And and Guardians 3 in the fall of 2022. Okay. After James Gunn's
0: Suicide Squad comes out.
2: Yes. Right. So you and I will be approximately 79 years old when those films come out. (laughs) Will we be on a podcast talking about Marvel movies at that time? Does this make you excited or daunted? Um. You know, I have, like, lizard brain with this stuff. I, I, I got to the end of Endgame, and I was like, I'm really glad I went on this journey. I tried to be as thoughtful and excited about it as I could throughout the whole thing, knowing that it is this the centerpiece of more modern movies. And then I was like, well, you know, I saw Spider-Man, and I was like, this is a fun movie, but I can sense, like, a, something waning here. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the Mahershala news, and I was like, yes. Yes, I will. Yes, put me in the movie theater for the Mahershala Blade movie. I don't even care about Blade. <laughs> yeah. But I have been somehow conditioned to get interested in I think there is something strategically compelling about bringing in Destin Daniel Cretton and being like, what if he got a Marvel sure. movie? They've now, like, lured in all facets of life. They've lured in 13-year-olds. They've lured in film nerds. They've lured in the media. They've lured in this, this wide expanse of Yeah, and even the consumer. people
0: who are actively like, this is bad for us, are still engaging with it on an almost daily basis. And
2: I think that war is over. You yeah. know what I mean? The whole, like, the Disney is eating our creativity for breakfast every day thing. Like, that's over. Like, we are... Our knee is bent. And <laughs> unfor- unfortunately, there's no one doing it in this in this current moment. Now, that doesn't mean that Marvel won't wane. These are pretty risky choices that they're making over the next couple of years. To hold off on Black Panther 2 for four full years yes. is pretty gutsy.
0: So we'll we'll see what happens. And do you think Coogler makes another movie before then? I would be shocked if he didn't. Yeah. You, you, that's a lot of time. I, seriously, because he sort of di- he didn't do Creed two, and then he and I, it, you know, they said that he was just sort of finishing the treatment and the outline for Black Panther two, but they've got to fit that into all these other movies. And then I think for everybody, they're all waiting to find out what happens with Fantastic Four and X Men.
2: Yeah, and it'll be interesting because now if you look at the schedule, basically from July fourth when Spider Man came out through February of twenty twenty one. There's only gonna be two Marvel movies. That's that's not a lot. That's not a lot. Yeah. So that's that's 20 months or so with two Marvel movies. And those movies are Black Widow, which, you know,
0: I think could be cool, but would probably like you're saying it's the stakes it, are probably low. It's a spy movie yeah. about
2: a dead character. Like it, it's gonna be what it's gonna be. Now that maybe they'll lard it with information the way that they did Captain Marvel and the way that they did Spider-Man Far from Home, where it's like you gotta see this for everything to make sense.
0: Sure. Or maybe she becomes the new Nick
2: Fury or something like, yeah. Yes. That's that's in play, I suppose. And Eternals after that, which is just—if you thought Guardians of the Galaxy was left of center, Eternals is even weirder. It's way more spiritual. It's way more cosmic, and it it's less. It involves like fun. the beginning
0: of the world, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah.
2: So I think it's about sort of the making of superheroes. Yeah. Um, the people who have the power to imbue superpowers to ordinary beings. Now, if that sounds fucking nerdy, it's because
0: it is. Yeah. So that's a—it's a fascinating gamble that they're taking. And a lot of these movies, you know, I think one thing that's defined. This last three or four years, especially since Guardians, has been this kind of winking meta humor that's run through these movies. You and I have talked about that in the Marvel movies a lot, where it's like Ragnarok was driven by its sense of humor. Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, driven by its sense of humor. Downey brought so much humor to these roles, and it was infectious. You could see all these other characters basically be like, oh, if I want this character to be popular— I'm not going to make him like this brooding samurai. You know, I'm going to make him into sort of like this joke joke machine, this one-liner machine. And that's not really what the Eternals are, right? That's not really what probably Captain although Marvel has been
2: maybe, but like Kumail Nanjiani is in the sure, Eternals, right. so I, who knows what kind of a movie they're going to make? They have, ma- you know, Miles Surrey wrote about this on the site this week, and he noted that there's just a format for these movies, which is you know, superheroic storytelling template. But just one-liners and pop culture references spewed by the characters at all times. Yeah, and to change that for a Chloe Zhao movie that probably is going to mean a lot to Marvel, I, I doubt it. They're they're probably going to still stick to their formula somewhat.
0: Anything you want to talk about else that came out of uh, Comic Con, Watchmen, Westworld? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be too hard on Watchmen,
2: knowing nothing about yeah. it. I just. As with all things Lindelof, like, I just don't get it. Right. I just don't get it. I think it's like, it seems boundlessly creative and with no purpose. And that is exactly how I feel about almost everything he does. Yeah, I'll
0: reserve. I, I think making trailers for TV shows is generally really hard. And it Especially is. something like that. It's, it's like, they're at once making sure we understand that it's part of the Watchmen, extension of Watchmen, but it's also trying to set up like a like a dystopian alternative future that is still recognizable to us. So I think they are doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, You know, like it it gets mentioned that it's in Tulsa. Like it's all sorts of stuff is like getting thrown at you in that. And at the same time, you're just trying to take in vibe and also the music that's going on on top of it. I did get pretty fired up when the Dr. Manhattan stuff started popping up towards the end. So I think that it's going to be I think I'm, I'm definitely willing to give it the benefit of the doubt.
2: Um I'm not sure if I'll give it that. I will watch it. Yeah. I will definitely watch it. I'm of course obsessed with Watchmen as any person of our generation is. I it's silly to be debating necessity because for sure. example Top Gun Maverick <laughs> is coming and that is not something that we need but it's something that I feel deeply inside me that I must have. Yes. And that's that's the tricky part about pop culture, you know, we, we keep getting it fed back to us, fed back some, you know, nostalgia Gerber baby food version of culture. And like, I
0: keep eating it. Yeah, well, I think the difference is, is that for you, if I can if I can speak for you, I think that um, there's something nakedly pleasurable about Top Gun 2 Maverick, whereas Watchmen probably seems like a little bit of work. That's, that's a strong way of putting it. It so, is going
2: to be eight weeks of having to think about whether something makes sense or not, right. which
0: frustrates which, me. Which Top Gun 2, they're like, in the trailer, they're like, it's Top Gun again. Like everything, every the same single shots. Of the shots. The shots are the same. But I almost find that to be like, I maybe I maybe my brain is broken. Maybe I have bent the knee, and I'm just like, yeah, I know. And I, I watched Top Gun one this this weekend, and I was like, bring it! I'm ready to watch this movie literally again with two different dudes. Yeah, just
2: with better cameras. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really all that's going to be the only really <laughs> difference. It's Joseph Kosinski shooting it, who is a great photographer of movies. Yeah. Whether he makes good movies or not is extremely debatable. <laughs> but he's he probably knows how to, I would say, trace. Yeah, this is a like that's a new genre of movie, the trace, where you're just going over the lines of what
0: we've seen before. Yeah, I was like, you could make the argument that that a lot of the Star Wars stuff is tracing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah,
2: and. You know, I'm game for that version of it, and maybe that's because it's a deeply heteronormative like straight down the middle I was eight years <laughs> old when I saw Quentin this movie Tarantino. that's a good point that's a very good point uh aside from that in San Diego no I mean nothing really popped. there's some gonna be some interesting stuff but most of the big studios cleared out because yeah. there was an underlying sense that Marvel was coming and so like we didn't see a DC movies presentation even though DC's got Joker and Birds of Prey and all this other stuff coming sure. out they didn't do any of that stuff at Comic-Con because they were afraid they were gonna get blown off the map by Marvel
0: um You know, one of the things that I think you've been talking about a lot with Dobbins in terms of your conversations about the box office that we talk about pretty casually, but, you know, movies now feel more like Uh, events right like they are and and they are drummed up as events and then the results of like the success or failure of these movies are judged very harshly because of the amount of hype that goes into them so there's a lot of anticipation for lion king or whatever and then we judge it against these historical kind of box office performances and i can't help but thinking that uh but think that as we move more towards this like there's just one screen, and it's all content, baby, and, like, it's all going towards this this one black hole where we just dissolve, that we're starting—that's starting to infect the way we talk about television a lot, too. How so? Big Little Lies. So, I was thinking about how Big Little Lies was, like, a totally good television show, but just— I think people's brains were broken about the enormity of the gathering of actresses. It was obviously like it had holes. It had tonal inconsistencies. There were times where I was like, what is this? Why are we doing this plot line? It felt like a, set, a seven episode show that was dying to be 12 episodes long. It, it just And just be like a normal season of television. And spoilers for anybody who didn't watch the finale. We're going to be talking about that a little bit. It ended on a total season finale cliffhanger. Like, it was not a, what did this show mean? Where do these characters go from here? It was like a real, like, and now there's going to be another season where it's like, what did Bonnie say in the police station? Um, I don't know when that season is going to come. I don't know whether or not. It sure feels like it's coming, though, right? Like, they kind of have to do a third one now? It would be kind of staggering if they didn't. I would imagine that the paperwork must be, like, in a vault somewhere at HBO and they're ready to break it out. But I, I, you know, the the couple of weeks of Andrea Arnold bad press, I wonder whether or not that impacts how they position, how they're going to talk about it. It certainly sets it up to be like, we're going to do right by the Big Little Lies story. Um, well, I mean, my perception of this is
2: that half of it is our fault and half of it is the show's fault. Go ahead. And by us, I mean the media and people who are online talking about it all the time and our perception of what something should be. And then the people who actually made the show and, and raised the stakes. I completely agree with you. I felt very similarly about the last season of Game of Thrones. It was a 10 or 12 episode season begging to happen with not enough expansion. Now, the difference between the two was there was so much more to do in Game of Thrones, and they just failed to do it. They declined to do it. They moved too far ahead in advance. And with Big Little Lies, I don't know if I've ever felt this way before, but there was just a complete absence of B-plot. There was no other story that felt meaningful. Right. And if you look at what they the did. stuff with Ed. Madeline and Ed is like, they have Reese Witherspoon, and she basically did nothing. Right. And she's one of the signature stars of her generation. And they spent a lot of time on Zoe Kravitz's character, which is a character I do not care about. And I don't think that that plot, plot was well told at all. Mm-hmm. And I think
0: that they never really convinced. That was actually like actively confusing. I couldn't understand what they were trying to say. Well, there were several times where I was like, I don't understand Is 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 her mom? Did her mom just pass away? And like, you know, like multiple times. It like, was
2: very confusing. And I wonder if that was particularly where some of the Andrew Arnold issues came about because those were also sequences where there was a lot of flashback. Mm-hmm. And anytime they went to flashback in the season, I thought, oh, they're cutting up Arnold's right. cut. Um, I thought that generally speaking, the Meryl Streep stuff was kind of amazing. I thought it was like showdown TV acting in a great way. And I enjoyed it. Even whether you like kind of believed in that side story or not. I thought it was very powerful, and I I don't underestimate just pitting Kidman versus Streep in a TV show. Like, that is a big deal. Yeah. And we overlook it because we had a season of this show already, but that stuff actually worked really well for me. I just think that the other half of it is this is the downside of eventizing anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if you eventize a Marvel movie, there's an expectation that it has to hit a certain pleasure center. It has to tell us something about where the story's going, and it has to create excitement in the now and anticipation for the future. And TV, especially TV that is laden with so many stars, should be doing the same thing. Unfortunately, Big Little Lies is this weird, ethereal soap opera, and it's not really like an engine for that kind of a machine, as much as we want it to be. We did Big Little Live here. I thought that show was great. I think often that show was sort of operating in like a more excited state than the show was worthy of, because Big Little Lies was made by four or five different people, all of whom clearly had different sensibilities. Sure. So it's, it's confusing. I mean, what is another example of a TV show where you feel like that expectation game is hurting us?
0: Um, I think some of the anthology stuff, like I think that the pressures put on Black Mirror to like change the way we think about existence every time it comes on is kind of it may, maybe the show's quaking under that a little bit. It's funny. I feel like that one more than others still, I still look forward to the future of
2: that show. Me too. In, in a way that I don't other like I actually
0: like didn't have, like, a huge issue with the last season, and I thought, like, the Andrew Scott one was, like, even though pretty straightforward, like, incredibly compelling television. Um, and I think th- the fact that they're still doing weird shit like Striking Vipers is... I thought that was great. ...really out there and, yeah. and, like, a great, like, kind of, like, just messing with audience expectations in a great way. But I think that its reputation as beca- as it became literally a an adjective like this is such a black mirror moment kind of like this is such like a, I feel so black mirror about this it became almost unbearable for the show itself to just kind of do a couple of different things and try stuff out which was always what I loved about it it was always that yeah we're just going to throw a white bear in here and see what happens you know
2: i felt this really acutely with a couple of shows one was the twilight zone which you and i talked about on this show mm-hmm. and kind of why that didn't work in a lot of ways. And then what was the Stephen King anthology series? Castle Rock. Castle Rock, same thing, which I thought had interesting things going on, but never quite threaded the needle of my
0: interest. Yeah, I kind of even wonder that about It too, which I'm super excited for, and I'm sure will be a real kind of like breath of fresh air in a weird way for the end of the summer to get that movie and get like a movie that like a lot of people are really excited about but like it's not Star Wars to me you know what I you know what I mean I like, know
2: but they desperately want it to be yeah they're eager to make it as such and I think the bigger question will be and this is related to the big little lies anxiety that you're underlining once it chapter two comes out and it explodes at the box office it, it was already the the, the biggest horror movie sure. in the history of movies. It's, what what is chapter three? What is the prequel? You know, the original Pennywise story. Like they're going to start to do that stuff and un- unwind it and unravel it and then tell it again. That's, yeah. the, the machine demands that. So I don't, I don't you know, I'm curious to see how that works. You know, like um, Gary Doberman was on my podcast a couple weeks ago. He made one of the Annabelle movies and he's now making Salem's Lot. Like, so now we're in this space where the King universe is, they're just starting from scratch. Yeah. They're just going to do all those
0: stories again most of them won't be as good as it. Yeah. no, I mean, that. But they literally aren't as good as it. Like, you know, the Stephen King books are pretty oh, yeah. like, and they're so, they're so hit or miss that you can't really make a consistent galaxy out of it. Yeah. I think that the things that I've really enjoyed this season for the most part have somewhat existed outside of that kind of pressure. You know, I, with the exception, I, I really like True detective season three, although I think that had only, it only had up. It, the only place to go for, the, for that show was up. But Fleabag was not only just a little miracle, but it was, I thought, pretty different from the first season, too. And when it ends, it's over. You're like, you know, I'm sure they're going to, like, ask. If she wins a bunch of Emmys, there's going to be a suggestion that she should do another season of Fleabag. I think from everything I've read from her and seen from her, she's like, that's how Fleabag ends. She turns away, you know?
2: I I, I hope so. Yeah. I hope, And I hope she goes on to make a million more things. She's obviously brilliant. Yeah. I have been having a similar feeling about Euphoria, yeah. which is a show that I, with each passing episode I've gotten more and more excited about and more and more interested in, but my impulse after last night's episode was, I hope this is only one season, and I know it's not going to be. I know there's going to be more seasons and they're going to tell more stories and they're probably going to introduce more kids, but this felt like a great little short story package, mm-hmm. you know, and it seemed like a smart way to interrogate the lives of young people in a very outsized way, in a not a realistic way, but... There's a lot of craft and artfulness going into that show. And I think we underestimated because of what you talked about on Bill's show last week with Amanda, just about the controversies that surrounded it and the entry point, the th- sort of 30 dicks memeing. Yeah. But as a piece of filmmaking and TV, I think it's operating at a much higher level. Super engaging. Yeah. They also
0: have like a couple of like rock solid stars on their Great show, actors. which is really can, kind of can't be underrated because there's so much TV out and you spend so much time watching something and you're like, these people are pretty good. The Rue and Jules thing is real like lightning in a bottle.
2: Yeah. Like you just don't get characters like that on TV. You don't get actors who can perform like that on TV. They've really, they
0: captured something. Yeah, there's just stuff too where it's like, you know, I always think about, um, you know, there, there's there's lots of great thinking and writing. You've done a lot of it about what makes a movie star a movie star and you could get into a bunch of different like elements of it but Hunter Schaefer when 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 she's just staring at the camera, it's just like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm just, like, super locked in here. Like-
2: Completely agree. She She's a just a real discovery to yeah. me. I, I hadn't seen her before, and I'm kind of blown away by that character, by that performance. I just think that's a—it feels like an authentically great show, and even though it's quote-unquote co- controversial, in a way that you might discover something when you were 17 and you weren't reading Twitter all day about what TV shows are coming out. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I did not really know anything about this. I knew about the controversies, sure. but I kind of came to the story itself fresh, and I've been enjoying being inside that world. And I think Fleabag had a similar experience for us in seasons one and two. Season one, it was like, "What is this? Who is this person?" I hadn't watched Crashing; I didn't know anything about her, and I just got invested and got yeah. interested. So that's I what felt I'm the same for. way.
0: So I, I felt the same way about this Veronica Mars revival, where I think I, I don't. We don't necessarily need to get into the plot points about it because I don't want to spoil anything for people who are just you know just starting it or haven't caught up on it yet. Maybe in a week or so, I can get into that. But just in terms of, you've got this property that people are really like in love. Like it means a lot to people. It means a lot to my wife. It means a lot to your wife. It just is a really meaningful property to people. And they did the movie version of it, which was a real fan service thing, but it was essentially like fan service at its, at its bare minimum where it was like, here's three people from the show standing in a room together being like, it's been so long since I've seen you. And it, it felt very like propped up a little bit. The film is not that effective. This season's kind of a miracle in a lot of ways. It's I I am. I was t- talking to Miles a little bit about it, and I was like, "It's kind of like they just like took Nancy Drew and made her into Jake Giddis. You know, like it's it's essentially like Chinatown. Um, it's not as good as Chinatown. It's, it's definitely TV ish. It's got like tons and tons of of subplots and stuff. But it takes a key lesson from Chinatown,
2: and the show always did this. The original version of yeah. the show always did this, and I always really admired it, which is that the mystery is not the point. Right. The characters and the things that happen to the characters is the point, and. Veronica's trauma, Veronica's wisecracks, Veronica's relationships is the the beating heart of the show. Yeah. And they just got right back into it. I mean, the show is 15 years old at this point. Yeah. And, and they just think managed it to jump like, right back you in. You
0: think it was season 11. It's amazing. It's, I mean, It's so
2: wild. Credit to the actors, credit to the people who made the show. But they don't focus the same way that like who killed Mulray and who's really running big water in Los Angeles are technically the plot details. Sure. Of Chinatown, at at least at the outset, but that's not really. It doesn't thematically, maybe that's what it means, but it's much more about the moment-to-moment conversations that Nicholson's character is having with, you know, uh, Faye Dunaway's character, and this show really tapped into that for for me in a perfect way. Even though I think that the actual plot of this season. Is like kind of convoluted, sure, yeah, and just an excuse to kind of let J.K. Simmons and Pat Oswalt vamp and do really funny stuff, and they're all kind of quip machines throughout this whole show, which is one of the charms of the show. Is it's all every character is basically written as the same person, yeah, which is like either Veronica or the creator Rob Thomas, <laughs> and they're all just kind of talking in the same way, yes.
0: Which is I kind of love shows like that. Me too. I'm fine with that, and I this this execution of this kind of thing reminded me of the way they kind of do. Uh, a lot of British TV, that the way they do Sherlock, the way they do even Doctor Who sometimes where they're just like, we took a couple, we took a beat, we took a step back. You know, it's, it wasn't on a consistent fall-spring schedule. It wasn't like six episodes that we hyped up. Just like we did eight episodes. It's a very, very effective compact story. Uh, we can talk more about the plot itself like in a later episode, but I just thought it was like the best possible execution of like IP mining and also streaming.
2: What's another show that's been dead for like 10 years that you'd love to see back in this way. Like, we just got Deadwood in the movie version and I felt like that was kind of similar to the Ver- Veronica Mars movie where it was like, this feels cool, but it's not like getting 10 episodes of Deadwood, which is what I really want.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I don't know. I, a lot of that stuff is sentimental for me, so I, I would, not, I would watch a Friday Night Lights high school reunion show. You know what That's I mean? That's a good idea. Uh, I wouldn't be, and I think it would be kind of amazing to see all of those people coming back to Texas for a weekend for whatever reason. And I don't know what could be different about it or what would be the sort of driving thing behind it. Maybe they have to save the school, maybe whatever. But like I, I'd be, I was rewatching some of those episodes. I was like, this fucking show was incredible. Kitch is available, I think. Yeah,
2: he was tabbed to break out. He didn't quite break <laughs> just out. Just so. hanging out. Yeah, so he's he's present.
0: Uh, what's one for you? Hmm,
2: a TV show that we could revive? Suddenly, Susan. No. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, New- News Radio. I love News Radio. The Last Terrestrial, but make it like serious. You can't do News Radio without Phil Hartman, though. You yeah. know, I wouldn't. I don't want the the Stephen Root version. Um, hmm. Let me think of a '90s television show that I would want to see back in the world. Dream on. No, that's that's you and Greenwald. You guys are all in on that. I mean, you, you know what is a weird version of it that I would love to see is just um the old version of Conan's show, the 1235. Like I'd love to see just 10 episodes of yeah. Conan doing the 1235 NBC show. That was that was probably my favorite show growing up. <laughs> that show, Jeopardy, The Simpsons, like those are um, you know, and we've seen versions of it like Seinfeld doing yeah. it on Curb Your Enthusiasm kind of does that a little bit. I was just reading this morning that um, the creators of The Simpsons are quite certain that Disney will want them to make another Simpsons movie really, as a sort of sequel to the last Simpsons movie, which is now over 10 years old. So that's the thing is anything you wish for, you're probably going to get. You're yeah. getting a Sopranos prequel pretty soon. Like these things are all already happening. So no matter what we
0: wish upon, we'll probably, it'll probably end up in our lap anyhow. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be here to talk about it. Sean, thanks so much for coming by The Watch today. Thanks, Chris. We have a lot of stuff this week going on. You and I? Well, we have a lot of Tarantino stuff. What about what's between us personally? (laughs) Should we talk about that here? That's the 10-year project. (laughs) Okay. We'll we'll come back to it.
2: Yeah, it's Tarantino Week on the site. We've got a really exciting podcast series that Amy Nicholson is hosting called uh, Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation. She had a long conversation with him, talked about some of his favorite films, how he watches movies, and how he makes movies. Um, you and I are doing some writing on the site. Yeah. You and I are going to review on a podcast the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. And we're going to name our Quentin Tarantino top fives. We're doing a lot. It's almost as if it's the last week of July and there's nothing going on.
0: Yeah, and also, like, we get one more Quentin Tarantino movie after this, so let's make the most of it. Very true. What if that last movie is a Star Trek movie? (laughs) Honestly,
2: I'm I'm in. Okay. Like, I'm good with that. I know Michael Bauman, our, our beloved colleague, is not a fan of that idea. <laughs> Who cares? Just yeah. make it. Just make, make another—what do you want, another Star Trek movie that J.J. Abrams made? No, thank you.
0: Okay. Sean, thanks for joining us. We'll be back on Thursday with a very fun group of guests.